Well, good morning, Aletheia Church. It's good to see a lot of you guys back this morning. I know some of you guys I have not seen since early March, maybe even February. So it's good to see some of you guys back in town already. If you're new here this morning, thank you for being here to worship with us. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, and I'm excited because this morning uh, not only coincides with a lot of you guys coming back into town, but it also uh, is a start of a, a new study that we are doing in the book of First Timothy um, as a church. Um, so uh, if you did not grab a scripture journal on your way to your seat this morning, we have a few people that would hand one out for you. Just raise your hand. That's our free gift to you if you didn't get one, um, or you can go grab one uh, if you want to distance yourself uh, from people. But uh, that is our free gift to you. And you may be asking, why, why a scripture journal? Why are we giving those out? Um, let me just say this. One of the things that I think... Um, I, I want you to understand and know about us as a church, collectively as a people, that, that we here at Aletheia Church, we love God's word here. We love God's word. We are unashamedly in love with God's word. And we believe that God speaks to us when we read his word, when we study it together, when we allow it to um, examine us and allow ourselves time to reflect on it, that we believe God uses it to challenge us, to reveal himself to us, to reveal to us the true nature of our own character. And we believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God uses his word and has been using his word for thousands of years to lead his people to a deeper knowledge of who he is, a deeper trust of who he is, and a greater worship of him. And so we at this church value God's word so much that when we uh, do sermon series or what we study together as a church, we go through entire books of the Bible together, verse by verse, line by line, because we believe that is how God is going to communicate to us. And so this is our gift to you. These scripture journals are really cool. On one side, they've got the word of God. And on the other side, they've got areas for you to take notes, jot down thoughts, jot down the questions. And then what we would ask of you is that you would bring these back. If you get one, that you bring it back every Sunday that you're here to worship with us, that if you watch the sermons online, that you would take these scripture journals and, and jot notes. If you're in a gospel community here, one of the things we do is we have discussions based on the section of scripture that we covered during Sunday sermon, and that you would bring those scripture journals to take more notes or get your questions answered. Because we want you to be locked arm in arm with brothers and sisters inside this church around you, walking through 1 Timothy together as we study it together. So if you have your scripture journal or your Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to 1 Timothy chapter one. That's where we're gonna be this morning. And we're gonna look at those first 11 verses. And before we dive into the verses this morning, I wanna give you just a little bit of a background or introduction to this letter, to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we, we as elders have titled the series in 1 Timothy, Instructions to a Young Church. And we think that that is fitting for a number of different reasons. One, if you don't know anything about the history of this church that you're uh, worshiping with this morning, this church is only seven years old. Uh, it was launched in 2013. Uh, we're very young. And not only are we very young in, in age of the church, but our primary demographic is under the age of 30. So we're young in age as a organization. We are young uh, in the average age of someone who attends our church. And the letter that Paul is writing here is actually to a similar demographic, that the church he's, that he is referencing in this letter is a very, very young church being led by some very, very young people. And so this, this book is called, uh, commonly known among scholars as a pastoral epistle. It's one of uh, three letters in the New Testament that are termed by biblical scholars as a pastoral epistle. And what I mean by that is it's just a letter written covering topics of you know church leadership, what leaders should do inside the church, but also what the church is supposed to look like. Uh, what does it mean 
to be a church that loves Jesus. These letters seek to answer that question right, to their intended audience. And so this particular letter is written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a guy named Timothy, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit more information on him in just a moment. But what he's done is he's asked Timothy to stick around and lead the church at Ephesus. Now, for those of you guys that were around when we studied the book of Acts, you may remember right, the story of what had happened in Ephesus once Paul had arrived there. Um, Turn over with me to Acts chapter 19 if you've got your Bible. I'm going to read just a few sections of what was going on uh, in the life of this church so we have an understanding of kind of the cultural landscape of what is going on as Paul writes this letter. Uh, Starting in verse 8 of Acts chapter 19, look at what uh, Luke says about what is going on. And he entered the synagogue, that's referring to Paul, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So if you remember back when I preached on that, I said, think about this for a second. Paul was so committed to reaching this city and reaching this region that Luke claims every single person in that region heard the gospel. He doesn't say that everyone responded. He doesn't say that everyone believed, but he said everyone heard the gospel. I mean, there was a revival and a move within the church in this city, unlike the world, uh, the likes of which the world had never seen before. That between Paul and the, the, the men and women who were committed to following Jesus inside this church, that there was this, just this huge movement of sharing the good news with the world around them. And so we see that Paul is there for about three years. And if you know anything about Paul's missionary journeys, that's a long time for him. He tended to not hang out in a place for much longer than three to six months when he was planning a new church. And yet he stuck around in Ephesus for three whole years. And after he leaves, once you get over to Acts chapter 20, he returns a few years later on his way back to Jerusalem and he warns the current leaders of the church in Ephesus of some things that he sees uh, on the horizon. And look at what he says to them starting in verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So here he is, he knows he's leaving Ephesus. He knows he's likely never to return. And what is is kind of his charge to them? Hey, false teachers are gonna come in and attempt to disrupt what is going on, what God is doing with you guys, what God is doing in this church. And so I want you to be aware that that's going to happen and know that you need to rest fully in God's word to protect you once that begins to happen. Be grounded in the word of God. And so when we get to 1 Timothy, we are after that visit now. We are after Paul's return to Ephesus and leaving this charge. When exactly, we're unsure, but we know it is after that. And so some of you may be sitting there and say, well, I know Paul wrote, Like, hold on, Kevin, I know Paul wrote a letter that's already in my New Testament to the church at Ephesus, right? The book of Ephesians. Um, And and you would be right, right? It's an awesome letter. It's specifically to that church on how to operate. But this particular letter is written to Timothy himself, who Paul had left there to lead that church through these false teachers coming in. This, is, this letter is, is particularly written to Timothy to encourage him how to lead well in the midst of all the things that that church is going to be facing. 
that he wants to encourage Timothy. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, here's, here's how I know right, that this is Paul's entire goal. Look at what he says in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So he says to Timothy, look, Timothy, I am leaving you there to be an example for everyone else. For everyone else in that church, I am leaving you to be an example. And so here's, here's what I want you guys to understand. We need to know a few things about Timothy if we're gonna properly understand this letter. All right, so here's, here's a little bit of information about Timothy. Uh, he had a Jewish mother and grandmother and a Greek dad. Right, so he was from a, a blended family in this time period. He had a Greek father and he had a Jewish mother. And his dad is not mentioned much throughout this letter, throughout the second letter, and anywhere that we see Timothy mentioned throughout scripture, his dad is not mentioned very often. But we do know for sure that he was absolutely raised by his mother and his grandmother. Paul mentions that. And so from this letter, here's some other things that we see about Timothy. He's smart, he's talented, he's gifted, and he was personally discipled and trained by Paul, which is a pretty good pedigree, right? Because Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament and planted a lot of churches, right? So Timothy is a pretty high caliber guy from what we can see. But we're also gonna see in these letters some other things about Timothy. We see that he's young. We see that he's possibly introverted. We see that he's anxious and unsure of himself. And here's why this matters, right? Especially in regards to most of you guys sitting here this morning who could find yourself with a lot of similarities to Timothy. We're gonna see that Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to encourage Timothy and anyone else who reads this letter, God wants to use you. God wants to use you. He doesn't care how old you are. He doesn't care what number you are on the Enneagram. He doesn't care what your personality type is. He doesn't care what your struggles are. God wants to use you to build his church and make much of Jesus. And so the entire backdrop of this letter is Paul sending a young man, Timothy, someone he deeply loves to a church, Ephesus, that he deeply loves to encourage both Timothy and the church to continue to grow together and to love God more and make much of Jesus. That's the entire purpose of this letter. And we're gonna see some really, really practical things throughout the course of our study together in this, right? We're gonna see how we can lead a church to be healthy and vibrant, how we can love God and his word together and how we can encourage one another to do that. We're gonna see how to approach sound doctrine and why sound doctrine even matters in the first place. We're gonna learn what it means to love other people well, even when it's difficult. My wife is well-versed in that. How to, how to love people well, even when they don't make that easy. We're gonna learn how to lead and what qualities we should look for in leadership and people that we allow to lead us. We're gonna see how to live lives to the glory of God inside of our friendships, inside of our marriages, uh, inside of the church. And then lastly, and I think this is gonna be one of the most important topics we'll cover throughout this entire letter, is in the last chapter of, the, of this letter, right, Paul is gonna talk about the importance of what he calls spiritual contentment. What it, what it means, right, to be content in where God has us and what God is doing in our lives and how to celebrate to the glory of God what is going on. And so my prayer is that God would use our time over the next several months as we study this book together, right, to lead us to love Jesus more, to fall more in love with God's word, to fall more in love with the people of this city and the people that are gonna be going to the University of Florida or Santa Fe or whatever context God has you in right now. And that together we would lock arms as brothers and sisters in Christ to love Jesus more and build his church. So before I specifically dive into the text, let's bow our heads. I'm gonna pray that God would use our study over the course of the next several months to do that in our own lives. God, I love you and I love your word. 
God, I love the men and women who are here this morning, who, have, who you have called out as your sons and daughters. God, I love this church, and I thank you for the privilege it is to be a pastor here. And God, as we study the book of 1 Timothy together over the next several months, would you do a few things in the lives of us, your church? Would you cause us to fall more in love with your word? Will you lead us to love one another and love this city the way that you would have us do so? God, will you lead us to love you and your son more deeply and more intimately? And will all of that be done not to the praise of the name of this church or anyone in this church, but to the praise and glory of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we love you. And I'm hopeful that we are gonna love you more by the time we are finished studying this book together than we did when we started. I thank you for that. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys ready to start? Haven't even started yet. Already been talking for like 45 minutes, all right? All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and, and through 11. Um, here, here's what we're going to see, right? Let me go ahead and start reading for you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Let me just stop there for a second. It's really, really easy whenever we're reading one of the New Testament epistles to glance over the introduction quickly. You know, it's like, hey, it's an introduction, like, cool. Right, but, but notice a few things that Paul does right from the outset as he writes this letter. Right? Paul is writing this letter first and foremost with God's authority. Right? Look at what he says. Paul, an apostle, that means a, a chosen messenger right, for the message of the gospel. Of Christ Jesus, by, by whose command is he writing this letter? By command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Right? So the first thing we need to kind of start with in understanding that as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, he's basically saying this, Timothy, as I write this letter to you, this is not my opinion. This isn't a, a few maxims to live by or a few proverbs. What I'm about to say to you in this letter is what God would have for you. It's as if God himself is writing you a letter and talking to you, Timothy. So you need to pay close attention because everything that I'm saying here is under God's authority and what he would have for you. And not only right, is this God's command, that this is God's word to you, but you need to understand that all of this is wrapped up in one thing, Christ Jesus, our hope. Right, notice how he doesn't say like, hey, here, here's a list of 10 things to live your best life and be the best Christian on the block. Right? Here's, here's a list of things you can do to make much of Jesus. Here's, a, here's all the things you can do. Right? No, he says, hey, all of this is centered around that this is God's word for you and it's all wrapped up in one thing, Jesus. That if you put any of your hope in anything other than Jesus himself, you will lose sight of why you are in Ephesus in the first place. And, and it's easy, and I understand this, right, to get lost with all the things we have going on, right? Some of you guys are getting ready to start a, a semester of college and you haven't been in classes for about six months. You're getting ready to do so in the, in the midst of a global pandemic. Some of us are trying to deal with working every single day while being afraid at all times that someone next to us has the plague and might infect us. Some of us are petrified if someone sneezes that, that they might catch some disease. Right? Some of us are, are forced to wear masks when we don't want to in situations where we're not comfortable doing so. Right? All of us are distracted by a million different things right now. And Paul just says this, hey, with everything going on around you, Timothy, don't lose sight of the fact that your life is centered upon the hope found in Jesus Christ. That your entire foundation for your living is based upon what Jesus has done for you. And we are writing this letter to you 
not because we want you to be a great pastor, but because of Jesus, that we want to make much of Jesus. And he goes on to say in verse two, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I find that verse to just be fascinating. Right? Look at the encouragement he gives Timothy there. Right? Look at the things that he wants for Timothy. Right? Grace, unmerited favor from God. He just wants God to bless everything that Timothy does. Right? Mercy, right? he wants Timothy to know right, that God's forgiveness is available to him when he inevitably fails as a leader at the church. Peace, that idea of peace in, in Jewish thought was this word shalom. Right? And oftentimes when we hear that word, we just kind of get the idea that shalom means like peace, like in wartime. But Jewish understanding of that word shalom is that peace was that everything was right in God's created order. That God created the world to operate a certain way within the confines of his creation. And so to declare shalom over something meant that there was family harmony, that there was friendship harmony, that there was neighborhood harmony, that there was city harmony, that there was harmony with God, that we were all at one with one another and that there was complete peace and understanding and love in everything that was going on in our lives, right? And Paul says, Timothy, I want the best for you. I want you to see God's grace in your life. I want you to understand God's mercy over your life. I want you to experience the peace that only comes from being reconciled to God. And here's why everything that Paul is saying to Timothy is so important, even to us. Remember what I said earlier about Timothy and his background, right? That he had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. That put Timothy in a very, very weird and unique position culturally. One, it's likely that his dad was absent. Right? Some of you guys have experienced that, absent, absent fathers, or you, you lost a father to cancer or to some other tragedy, and how difficult that can be emotionally and physically and spiritually to not have a father present in your life. Right? Timothy knew the reality of that. And Paul, as someone who loved Timothy, understood that as well. And so he knows that Timothy struggles right, with trusting himself because dad had not been there to encourage him. Hey, I love you. I value you. I love what you're doing. I know where you're going in life and I'm your biggest supporter. Like one of the things I have to remember as a father consistently with my sons is God has placed me in their lives, not to make them into little clones of Kevin, but to help them grow into the men that God has called them to be. And I'm there to encourage them in that and cheer them on in that process and remind them that when I see character in their lives that is in step with God's word to affirm them and to encourage them in that. And Timothy didn't experience that. Now, not only did he not experience that from his own father, but in the context of his faith uh, background, he was a Greek. And Jews and Greeks didn't get along very often. So here he felt alienated in his own home oftentimes because his dad wasn't around, but he probably also often felt alienated in his own faith community growing up as a Jewish boy with his mother and his grandmother because he had a Greek father. And so he probably often felt like an orphan. And yet here is what Paul says to him. Timothy, you are not a mistake. You are my spiritual son. God loves you. He cares for you. And so do I. I don't know where you are at this morning, but hear me when I say that this this morning. You are not an accident. You are not an accident. Theo preached a couple weeks ago from Psalm 139. And I want to share with you one of the verses he shared with us that morning. Starting in verse 13. For you, this is David singing God's praises. 
right? He's crying out to God. And look what he says. For you, God, form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That is true of every human being that has ever existed. That God made them in his image and likeness and cares deeply about them. This means that God cares about you and that God made you. To the creator of the universe, you matter. I know that there may be times in life where it doesn't seem that way, but according to the word of God, you matter to him. We see Paul encourage Timothy here that he knows that the job that he has given him is tough. But if he remembers who he is, one of God's sons, he'll remember that he matters, that God believes in him, and that more importantly, that not only more importantly, but not only does God believe in him, that Paul believes in him, and that he can do the job that Paul has left him to do at Ephesus. And I think it would be wise for us to remember, right? That anytime that, that we wanna walk with God, right? That we wanna live out what it means to be a Christian, right? Especially in a changing and evolving culture that's moving to be more and more antagonistic of what we may believe to be true about God. That God's promise to us is he loves us He's forgiven us, forgiven us, he cares about us, and he's there for us. And we don't need to doubt whether we can make much of him to our friends, our family, our neighbors, whoever it may be, because God is for us making much of him. And that God is for you. And then he's gonna die, he, and he, so he, he drops this introduction Everything's about Jesus. And then he moves on to say, Timothy, I believe in you. And then he's just gonna start diving in to what he thinks he, Timothy needs to start doing as he leads this church, right? Look at what he says in verse three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. All right, so Timothy could have started with anything. To t I mean, excuse me, Paul could have started with anything to tell Timothy. You know, how to set up church government, right? How to teach on tithing, how, how to lead a Bible study, right? He could have started with anything to Timothy. And look at what the first thing he says to him is. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Two things there. First thing is he uses the word remain. Why does, why does he use that word? I'm not going to go in depth about this, but I just want you to notice this. If you wanna have a lasting impact in someone's life, if you wanna see a church or a ministry that you were a part of impact the lives of other peoples for the sake of Jesus Christ, that is what you should be after, remaining. There, there's a lot tied up in that, but I'll just say this. There is an assumption there by Paul using that word that everything Timothy is gonna go through is gonna be difficult. People are gonna reject him. People are gonna call him names. They're not gonna to wanna to follow him, that people are going to uh, try to deny what they're doing. And Paul's encouragement to him is, don't make everyone like you, remain. Remain faithful. Some of you guys have been followers of Jesus since you were really, really little. And here's what I would say to you. Most likely your parents are someone in your life remained faithful to disciple you. For me, right, it was my sister. 
months and months and months of her trying to share the gospel with me and me rejecting her and her faithfully loving me, faithfully spending time with me, faithfully pointing me to God's word, faithfully calling out inconsistencies in my life. The number one thing my sister did to point me to Jesus wasn't with apologetics, wasn't with her studying of God's word, wasn't with her knowledge of all of my sinful behavior and what God's word said in light of that. No, the most important thing my sister did in witnessing to me the love of Christ was that she remained, that she did not throw in the towel when I rejected her and made her life more difficult at times as she tried to share the gospel with me. And Paul says, Timothy, remain so that you might instruct them not to teach any different doctrine. He starts off the letter by saying, hey, everything, you're gonna be, everything I'm gonna tell you to do is gonna be tough. Be ready to, be ready to stick it out. Be ready to show some grit and patience. And that is the same encouragement that God gives to us to remain. Some of you guys have been around for the last year and you, you were there that first Sunday when we asked you to write one person's name on a card that you wanted to see come to know Jesus. And one of the coolest things for me as a pastor is almost a full year has passed where we've done that. And some of those people have responded and now love Jesus and are sitting in this crowd this morning. Some of those people we've baptized already. And some of those people don't love God any more than a year ago. And yet in my gospel community, we're praying for those people every week by name, we're sharing how things are going on, right? Because there is a commitment to them to remain faithful the way that Paul calls Timothy to here in chapter one. And so his directions to Timothy are to remain. And the second thing is to instruct them in doctrine. Doctrine matters, guys. The things we believe about God and know about God matter. Because God cares that we know him, that we know ourselves, that we worship him for who he actually is. Paul has spent, had spent years teaching in Ephesus about who God really was and who they were in light of who God was. And now that was beginning to be warped and what was warping it, right? Look at the things that he mentions there. Myths, genealogies, false views of the law. And all of those false views that were coming into the church were causing speculations, right? Let me give you the, the 2020 translation to what Paul's talking about there. Conspiracy theories, right? I, I, think, I can think of no greater time in my life since being a follower of Jesus than where I've dealt with more people who are giving into conspiracy theories and false speculation than when, since when COVID started. Right? Like the, the number of times over the years, I mean, I've seen plenty of like endless speculations. How many of you guys, if I told you, right, that this fall we were gonna do a study in the book of Revelation so that we can understand end times, you would be intrigued by that. Yeah, yeah like half, half the audience, right? We love that kind of stuff, right? Because, and, and here's, here's something that's really fun to me. A couple of years ago when we were still a very, very young and we were meeting downtown, like a group of like three or four guys came up and was like, Kevin, you know what, you know what we think would be really great and like a, a great way to grow the church and pull a bunch of people in is just to study the book of Revelation together. And I was like, absolutely not. We will not do that. I was like, and I, was like I remember seminary. That was like one of two areas where people never saw eye to eye and never stopped arguing about and not only that, right, here's what you need to know about the end times. I've read, I've read the book. I've studied it out. I have my own thoughts, right, about what's going on. But let me just say this. Here's what you need to know. Jesus comes back and Jesus wins. That's it. It's all you need to know, right? Whether you're amillennial, premillennial, post-trib rapture, whatever, where, wherever you sit on the end times discussion, right, Tim LaHaye, you know, left behind, whatever it is you're doing, here's what we need to know. Jesus comes back and Jesus wins. That's it. The rest endless speculation. And yet when you see Christians, right, fighting amongst themselves, one of the primary ways that happens is always with the end times, right? When I was on staff at a church in Tampa, there was this group that had like taken out billboard signs, like we found it. The end of the world is coming in October of this year. They're like telling all these people about it. 
Some of you guys are like, I wish that had happened because COVID sucks. They were wrong. People have been doing that for thousands of years, saying they know the exact date and time that Jesus is coming back. And then they argue amongst themselves and it leads to endless speculation and fighting. And it causes the church to get off, of tr- off track of what its true mission is, is to tell people about their need for God and, and the mercy found for them in Jesus Christ. And so I told these guys, like, absolutely not. We will not be studying that book. You can study it on your own. You you will not be leading anybody. And I will promise you this. All three of you guys are best friends right now. You're roommates, and you all dislike each other by the end of that study. (laughs) Because you're all going to have a different interpretation of what is going on at the end of the book of Revelation. And so Paul says to Timothy, look, I need you to remain because there are people in the church leading this type of speculation right? Leading conspiracy theories and myths and genealogies and all these different things. And some of you guys may be sitting there like, well, how does this apply to me? I'm not Timothy. I'm not a leader in a church, right? Here's what God is calling us to do as the body of Christ. We need to be in a church that cares about God's word. We need to commit together, no matter where you're living, no matter what season of life you're in, no matter how whether you're just attending a church or you're the lead pastor of the church that you need to lock arms together and say, our church cares about God's word and doctrine together. We care about this. And not only do we care about it, but we're charged with studying and learning sound doctrine together. And in that, we correct people together that go off in this type of fruitless endeavor. Paul's direction to Timothy is that we care about God's word, we learn together, and we instruct when people stray from from that word. A prime example of how easy it is to get off track is a couple of years ago, right, some Krishnas came to our church. And they were there one morning, right, and I was talking to this younger guy and, 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 and we're meeting there and they're telling me about what they believe. And as we're talking, the one, the one kid looks at me and goes, you know, I really think we just believe the same thing. And I'm like, really? Do tell. <laughs> like, let's go on. The guy goes, yeah, yeah. Like, like I, I kind of view it this way. You, you view, it's like if you had a, like we're worshiping the same God. We just use different names and different terminology to describe him. I'm like, okay, interesting. So I'm, I'm like letting this guy talk. He's like, yeah, let me give you an example. Like, what if you and I had the same job? I'm like, okay. He's like, and, and we both have the same boss and you call your boss Ted and I call my boss, the boss Mike and, it, and his name's actually Dave, but we're all following the same boss, right? Like it all works out. I'm like, dude, your analogy kind of holds up, except I can tell you've never had a job. And he, he kind of looks at me like, huh? Like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, here's the deal. If your boss's name is Dave, guess what he's going to demand you call him? Dave. (laughs) You're going to call him Ted. You're going to call him Mike. And if you continue to call him Ted or Mike, guess what your boss is going to do? He's going to let you find a new boss and call him whatever you want because that's how people operate. They want you to refer to them by who they actually are. And guess what? God's the same way. If God has revealed himself to us, told us who he is and how to follow him, he wants us to follow him in that manner and that way. And that is why doctrine matters. It's not about being right. It's about worshiping the creator of the universe as he has revealed himself to us. And look, some of you might be sitting there saying like, well, I do correct people, right? Like, like my parents have crazy conspiracy theories or my kids have crazy conspiracy theories and, I, and they have terrible views of God and I, I try to correct those things and, and they have bad doctrine. But whenever I do, people never respond and they just double down on what they already believe in. Like, why? Why do they do that? I think verse five might give us a little bit of a hint as to why that might happen. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is what he's saying. If people aren't responding to sound doctrine and teaching, 
It might be because they aren't responding to the teaching, but it might be because you're trying to win an argument and prove who's right instead of actually loving them and pointing them to Jesus. If you've ever found yourself debating people in the past several months over doctrine or conspiracy theories and not seen any movement from them, possibly just check your motivation. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to love people and lead them to Jesus. And we do that by remaining and being committed to sound doctrine. If we aim to do that well, we will love others, lead them, and make much of Jesus. So what we've seen so far, right, is you matter, doctrine matters, and God wants us to love people well. Let's keep going. Verse six. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. All right, Paul just says to Timothy, hey, look, if you let certain people lead discussions on stuff, you have given yourself over to fruitless wastes of, wastes of time. Right? Quit wasting time. Don't let these people dominate or lead. <laughs> All right, if people want to talk about this stuff, do not give them a platform. It's pretty simple. Then look what he says in verse seven. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions, right? He's like, look, these guys, they want to be teachers, but they don't know what they're talking about. It's that simple. Uh, uh, some of you guys know this already. I love my favorite television show is The Office. It's my absolute favorite TV show. And as I read that, th th that this past week, the only thing that came to my mind was this. There's that episode where Michael goes to New York because his branch is the only one that is doing well. And he's sitting there and he thinks he's in trouble. And then David Wallace looks at him and goes, so Michael, how are you doing it? And he spends like the next three minutes still going, don't for any reason ever, no matter what, if anyone ever asks you, no matter what's going on, no matter what happens, right? And then it cuts to his talking head. And he's like, sometimes I start a sentence and I don't know where I'm going. And I just keep going until I find it. That was the, that is what these false teachers were like. They're like Michael, bum, like bumbling through a statement, having no idea what he's talking about or where he's going. Michael had no idea why his branch was doing well. He was a terrible boss. And here, the CEO of the company brings him up there. He's like, why, why, why are you doing so well? Well, he couldn't answer that question because he didn't know. In the same way, these false teachers are trying to lead people and studying the law and knowing God and leading them to be a church. And they have no clue what they're talking about, right? And, and Paul says, look, they're rambling and it's nonsense. Do not give them a platform. Do not let them teach. And, and here's what they were teaching, right? They were teaching the law as the source and means of salvation, right? They had confused, right, what they knew as Jewish uh, followers with what had happened in light of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. They were completely confused as to how to apply the Jewish law to the gospel. And they had no idea how to teach on it. And if you've ever read Romans, you know how confusing it can be because even Paul himself struggles to teach some of that stuff. So Paul's like, don't let these people teach. I struggle to teach this. They definitely can't. And as they're doing this, right, Paul's message all throughout the New Testament, the law does not save you. Timothy, don't let other people teach that. Don't let that confusion enter, enter the, into the church. Just because these guys appear confident does not mean they aren't wrong. Do not give them a platform. Then he goes on to say this in verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good. See what he's doing there? It's like, look, just because the false teachers, right, mess up the law doesn't mean the law isn't good. The problem is them, not the law, right? Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
if you've ever wondered how in the world do I reconcile the law and the gospel, I would encourage you to go listen to the last two sermons that Pastor Daniel preached on. That's all he talked about was how as Christians we can approach the law of God, love the law of God, and see it play out in our lives without making it the primary thing. But let me just give you a Cliff Notes version of how people often look at the law and head in the wrong direction. Right? This tends to be what human beings do. We see God's rules, regulations, and law laid down before us, and we respond in one of two ways to reading it. We either respond in licentiousness or we respond with legal, legalism. Right? So those that are licentious, some of you guys are like, I have no idea what that word means. Right? It means that you feel like you don't have to follow that. You have a license to do whatever you want. Right? And so you, you look at the law and then you say, Jesus died for my sins. And you put those two things together. And it's like, well, Jesus died for my sins so I can live and do whatever I want. And that's not the application of the gospel and the law. Right? The, the gospel is not your get out of God's rule free, get out of God's rules free card. Right? So, so there are some, right? They look at the law and they say, well, I don't have to follow that anymore. And then there's the legalists, right? We all know these people. They're a lot of fun to be around, aren't they? Right? They're the ones that, that come into a room and make sure everyone's following the rules all the time and are the sticklers for everything that's going on. And they are the ones that have the, the propensity to always make you feel guilty for everything that you ever do that's wrong. And the real problem right, with the legalists is not that you know, they're critical and annoying, right? which legalists, sorry, you are. I'm, if you can't tell which way I err, I'm a little bit more gracious to the licentious side, sorry. Right? But the legalists, right? it's not so much that you call out everyone's faults and you care about every rule, but that you think you can follow it 100% of the time and never make mistakes. So for those that, are, that respond to the law with licentiousness, you pretty much just say, well, the law doesn't matter anymore. And for those that are legalists, you say, only the law matters and I can do it. I can follow this. I can do everything that God asks of me and demands of me. And both of those ways of approaching the law are insufficient and wrong and will not lead you to God, but away from him. They will instead lead you into hopelessness and despair. The law applied rightly good, as Paul says here, shows us our sin and our need for Jesus. Not to earn our salvation, but to show us that Jesus earned it for us. The law is good. It both shows us our inability to follow God's perfect standard, but also the beauty of Jesus Christ because he did follow it fully. And if we properly understand the law, we will better understand the holiness of God and the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. Charles Spurgeon said this when describing the problem that was going inside of the church at Ephesus when Paul is writing this lesson, uh, letter to Timothy, look at what he says. He says, listen, there are many who are quite ignorant as to the natural righteousness of God's character. He just means there are a lot of people that don't understand what holiness actually is, how amazing God actually is. And look at what he says. They do not know how intensely he hates sin, how his anger burns against injustice and untruth. They have never conceived an idea of how pure he is, how infinitely holy he is. They have never been in sympathy with the angel's adoration as to know what is meant by the celestial chant, holy, holy, holy Lord God. They think, says God, that I am altogether such as one as thyself, that if thou art pleased with thy righteousness, I must be pleased with it too. And if thy poor pride and stupefied conscience be satisfied, therefore God must be satisfied also. Those who are satisfied with their own 
holiness are ignorant of God's attribute of righteousness. Let me read that last line for you again. Those who are satisfied with their own holiness are ignorant of God's attribute of righteousness. Paul says, Timothy, the law is good. Don't throw the law out, but throw the bad teachers out. And then teach the beauty of God's law so that we might gaze into how holy and amazing God truly is. And in that, we will recognize our own inability to follow what God asks of us. And Jesus, who did so, will be all the more awe-inspiring and beautiful. A proper understanding of the law should lead to a greater worship of Jesus, not a greater love of self. We must take special attention to correct in love those who misrepresent God's character, especially through the law, because the gospel is at stake. If you've been sitting here like, hey, Kevin, you said that, that God cares for me. You've said that God is merciful. You have said that doctrine matters and that we're supposed to love, but I, I can't quite grasp why doctrine matters so much. Look at verse 11. He says, all of that stuff about sound doctrine in the law, and then look what he says in verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. We have been entrusted with the most important news the world has ever seen or heard. Now, Paul wasn't the only person that was given the gospel. As a matter of fact, this entire letter is him teaching Timothy how to continue on his legacy of defending the gospel. And so when Paul writes to Timothy and says, doctrine matters, it's not because one denomination has it right over the other. It's not because we just like to be right and Paul was better at parsing out the Greek than Apollos was. No, Paul says doctrine matters and what we believe about God matters because we have been entrusted with the gospel, right? Over the years as we've been here, right, one of our reputations as a church is that we're known for really, really caring about the Bible and really, really caring about God's word. Love that reputation. <laughs> people, but there have been times where people have been, oh yeah, I've heard about your church. You're, the, you're those guys that really care about the Bible and doctrine. And they, they say it in like a derogatory manner. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was a bad thing. <laughs> I, I wasn't aware. And like, yeah, I'm more interested in a church that, that just lives out their faith, just, that just lives it out. And I'm like, well, hold on. First of all, I didn't know that those two things were mutually exclusive. I did not know that you had to care about one. And if you cared about one, you couldn't care about the other. But here's the problem with whenever someone has kind of said that to me over the years. They're basically saying this. Hey, as long as we love people, God doesn't really care what we think or teach. He doesn't care what we think or teach about him. He doesn't care what we teach or think about other people. And he certainly doesn't care about calling people to repentance and being in line with holiness. And I would say when I read the Bible... That is not what I see. I see a God that cares so much about our rebellion and our sin that if he hadn't sent his only son in our place to die on the cross, to satisfy the wrath of God, you and I would have no hope or reason to be alive. That's why doctrine matters. That's why understanding things matter. It's because what is at stake is the glory of God and the gospel. This isn't some minor argument over little disagreements about whether we believe Jesus is fully God or not. 
It's a matter of whether what God says to be true about how he saved you is really true or not. And that is why we care. And that is why it matters. And that is why it should matter to you. And that is why you should be a part of a church. And let me tell you something. There are plenty of churches in this city that care about this kind of thing. It does not have to be this one. But please, I implore you, wherever you are at in life, no matter how old you are, no matter what your job is, no matter how busy you are, be a part of the church and make sure that that church cares about God and his word. Because we have been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You see all the positive language Paul uses there in verse 11? The gospel, that word means good news, of the glory, that means the magnificence and the power of the blessed God. That is what we've been entrusted with. No no matter where you're at this morning, know this, you matter because God says you matter. And he wants to use you to share the glory of what he has done for the world in Christ Jesus. Some of you are like, I I can't speak in front of a crowd. You don't have to. My sister has never spoken in a crowd of larger than three people and led me to Christ. But because of my sister's faithfulness to remain, I've had the privilege to preach the good news to hundreds and thousands of people. Because God used her. And God wants to use you. He wants to use you to build his church, to instruct and teach on sound doctrine and to correct with love, to press people towards Jesus. Not to impress God with your good works, but to tell people about a a God who loved you so much that he sent his only son to die in your place and then rose again to offer you new life in him. We are entrusted with that message, with that truth. We're called to guard it, to guard it with love and never to cease to preach it. As we study this book over the next several months, I want you to recall what we talked about here this morning. Everything we're gonna see in 1 Timothy is based upon this foundation. God loves you, he cares for you, and he wants to use you to build his church, not based on your opinions, but on his word. In a moment, we're gonna take communion, right? And, And I say this often, right? But as we take communion, right, what we're doing is an act of worship, right? We're responding to everything that I just said about what Jesus Christ had done for us, right? On the, on the night of Jesus' arrest, right? He stood before his disciples and he broke bread and he gave out the wine and he said, this is a representation of my body and my blood, which is gonna be given for you on behalf of, of what I'm going to do for you, right? That my flesh and my blood are gonna be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so every time we partake as a church communion, and we do this every Sunday at Aletheia Church, what we're doing is we're remembering that the cost of what it took to forgive us of our sins was the life of Jesus Christ. And we do so solemnly, right? We take it in respect, but we also do this, right? I remember as a kid taking communion in my church, right? And it being this really somber occasion where everyone looked like they were uh, angry and upset and sad. And there may be times in your life where you're dealing with a lot of sin and you're repenting of sin and you just feel overwhelmed. But let me just say this, communion is an act of worship because when Jesus hung from the cross, the last words he said before he died was, it is finished. 
And he was not referring to that act on the cross. He was referring to the wrath of God being satisfied once and for all because he was paying that penalty on the cross. And so when you take communion, right, and you are identifying that Jesus' flesh and blood is sufficient to save you from your sin, you are declaring that what Jesus has done is enough. And we take communion not as penance, but as an act of worship because it is finished. And as you take communion, I would encourage you to confess any sin and repent of it, but then I would encourage you to worship Jesus, to sing with the band as they lead us in, in, in song. And if you pray, pray that God might lead us to do exactly what he asks Timothy to do in this letter, to recognize the magnitude of God's love for us in Christ Jesus as our only hope, to care deeply about doctrine, and in caring about that doctrine, instruct and correct others, including ourselves, in love to the glory of God.